That's what I call a fair division of labour. Uh, it's good to be with you. I bring you greetings from uh, Whitcomb Baptist Church. Uh, I was uh, with uh, Peter Culver only this week, uh, who I have to say is looking a little older, um, less strong and able as he was, still enjoying his iPad, I have to say. Uh, in his 89th year and using an iPad, how's that? I think that's pretty good myself. Mind you, he was always one for gadgets, was Peter. Do pray for Peter and pray for May. She's doing a great job looking after him. And uh, he's very much loved by lots of people, including you. And he has a great love in his heart for lots of people, including you. Uh, I was also um, on the telephone this week to Paul Mallard. He's coming to preach for us next Sunday and he wanted me to pass on his greetings to you. And we had uh, Jonathan Sell this morning, and he came home for lunch, and he too passes his greetings on. So I think I've done my duty uh, <laughs> in extending the greetings of uh, all of our mutual friends. Well, not all of them, but a number of them. It's good to share God's Word together this evening. Our uh, theme is Christ-centered living. Christ-centered living. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you that Christ is the centre. He's the centre of the universe. He's the centre and head of his church. He's the centre of the lives of all those who are the redeemed people of God. We pray, Lord, that in your grace he might also be the centre not only of our lives but the centre of of our living. For Jesus' sake. Amen. If, you, uh, an, uh, if you're an attentive uh, reader, you would hardly have escaped, you hardly escaped your notice how activity related this chapter is. Um, it's full of, uh, when I was at school, I was taught in, in English grammar that a verb is a doing word. Uh, uh, I, I, did, I do remember a, a bit more grammar than that, but it never actually escapes me that uh, a verb is a doing word. And we've got loads of verbs here, loads of doing words. So, just look down the passage, verse 1, set your hearts on things above. Look at the second verse, set your minds. These are doing words. Verse 5, put to death. Uh, verse 8, rid yourselves. Verse 12, clothe yourselves with compassion, etc. Verse 13, bear with each other. Verse 14, put on love. Verse 15, let the word, sorry, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And verse 17, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is not a chapter concerned with letting go and letting God have his way. It's a chapter that's filled uh, with activity. We have to be active in our Christian lives. Now, there are two reasons for this, which are apparent from the text. Um, 
And the first reason is this, that the two chapters have already explained the activity of God. So, so God has already been active in, in our lives. And our activity is simply a response to his activity in our lives. So look at chapter 1 with me in verse 13. This is speaking of God. For he has rescued us. God has been active. He has rescued us. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. God has rescued us. And the same chapter, verses 21 and 22. Once you, you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he, who's it speaking of? God. He has reconciled you. God has reconciled us by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So God has rescued us and God has reconciled us. And we could say a lot more, but just look at chapter 2, verses 13 and 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code, etc. Can you see the doing words on the part of God, the verbs, how God has been active long before he calls us to be active. He's been active in our, our world and he's been active in our lives. He has rescued us. He has brought us. He has reconciled us. He has made us alive in Christ. We have a God who has acted on our behalf. And our activity is simply a response to his prior activity in our lives. Without his activity, we wouldn't be where we are. Without God's intervening grace, we would not be in this position of grace to be able to respond in this way. So the first, the first reason for us to be called to be active in the way that we're thinking of is that God has already been active in our world, in our lives. But there's a second reason as well, and it's right there, at the beginning of our chapter, and Paul bases his whole argument on this, <clears throat> since then you have been raised with Christ. Now that is where he starts, and it's a very important start as well, because everything which flows is based on the premise that we have been raised with Christ. We've already considered the fact that God made us alive in Christ. And when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, we were raised with Christ. Okay, I know we will be raised with Christ, but in God's economy, brothers and sisters, we have already been raised with Christ, and we're already here and now in his economy seated with Christ in heavenly places. This is our position as the people of God. And since these things are real, and since these things are true in our own experience, certain things flow from this. And in essence, to sum it all up, if you want the short sermon, 
It's this. God calls us to Christ-centered living. And if you just want a short sermon, then switch off and you've, you've got the essence of it. Because what Christ, what God has done for us, he wants us to respond by Christ-centered living. But for those of you who want the longer version, just bear with me for a few more minutes. And so, our relationship with, with Christ is based on the presupposition that these Christians had already been raised with Christ, and that as a consequence, certain things will naturally flow. Now, that's very important. We are, as they were, new creatures in Jesus Christ, rescued from a former way of life, um, and to serve a new master. That is, that is the position that these Colossian Christians were in. And they were therefore to live in newness of life. What is important for us to understand this evening is, is that this expectation was not only directed to their individual lives, and it certainly was, but it was also directed to their corporate life together. And, and this evening, we're going to be thinking about that. I mean, so often, and quite rightly, we take these scriptures and we say, well, that applies to me. And, and I have to respond to that personally, and how true that is. But brothers and sisters, this is a lesson, this is a passage for the church. It speaks to our corporate life, as it does to our individual life. And what was true of them in the first century of the Christian, of the church's life, is also true of us in the 21st century of the church's life. And so, um, this uh, application is made to those who are described as having been buried with Christ and raised with him. And we've already thought about this earlier in, in our, our service, that when Jesus died on the cross, he acted on their behalf and on our behalf as individuals. He acted to bear their sin. He acted to take the punishment that was due to them. Jesus, when he died on the cross, just didn't show us the love of God, although he certainly did this. He certainly showed us the love of God. But when Jesus died on the cross, he stood, or he hung, where we should be. He acted as a substitute. He stood where we should stand. He was our substitute. He stood in their place, and that's true of us. And this is what it means to be in Christ. And so the very first thing I have to say is, are you in Jesus? Are you believing in Jesus? Are you trusting in Jesus? Is Jesus personal to you? You know, we, when I was a little boy, I, I, I was taught uh, stories about the Bible, and one of the, 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 the stories I was told that, that Jesus died on the cross, and he died to forgive me my sins. I, I heard it, I heard it many, many times, but it didn't actually mean anything to me personally until I realized that I needed to respond to that because I was a sinner and I did, needed my sins dealt with. Otherwise, I was lost forever and I needed to trust Jesus personally and commit my life to him. And that has to be the position of all of us this evening. And so I plead with you that if that hasn't been the case, maybe you're a young, a young person this evening 
and you've been brought up in your homes and in your church uh, with these, this teaching for a long, long time, respond to Jesus. Recognize that you are a sinner. Recognize that you need to be forgiven. And the only means of your forgiveness is Jesus' death on the cross where he took your place. So, these Colossians were new creations in Christ and certain things were to flow from this which affected them practically, individually, and corporately. And the first thing I want to say uh, is that they were to set their hearts and to set their minds on things that are above. So that's our first point. We're to set our hearts and minds on things that are above. <clears throat> Verses 1 and 2. Our hearts. Our hearts, uh, our hearts in scriptural terms is the very center of our being, this very center of our consciousness. This is where our joys our longings, our desires, our emotions reside. This is the center of our will and our intentions. And so central is our hearts to our beings that Jesus described our hearts as the thing that makes us unclean. He said to his disciples, it's not the things that you eat that make you unclean, it's the things that come out of you that make you unclean because they show how unclean you are. And he was speaking of our hearts. Our hearts are unclean. But the, the heart of the believer is transformed. The heart of the believer is transformed by the Holy Spirit. And that transformation process, because it is a process, directs our hearts upwards. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. That's where the what the text tells us, where Christ is seated. That's where Christ is. If we're raised with him, uh, then he should be the, the center of our beings. Our heart should be set on him and should seek those things that are above, those th things that please him. Jesus encouraged his hearers to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. So our first thing is that we're to set our hearts on things above. That's where Christ is. If Christ is so important to us, if he's the center of our, our beings, we will want to set our hearts, which is the center of our being, on those things that are above. That's where Christ is. But not just our hearts, our minds as well. We're to set our minds, verse 2, on things that are above, not on earthly things. We so often set our minds on earthly things, don't we? Our minds give us the capacity to think. That isn't a medical statement. Um, uh, it, it's just a, a matter of fact. Uh, and there is a very strong correspondence, isn't there, between our hearts and our minds. So often the things that our hearts desire, our minds are directed towards. Isn't that true? Occasionally our hearts and our minds are in conflict. Uh, we sometimes know what we ought to do, but we find ourselves emotionally drawn to do something else. Do our hearts rule our minds or do our minds rule our hearts? They are sometimes in conflict, but more often than not, they are not in conflict. And we find our minds focusing on the things our hearts long after. Um, we may um, be hungry 
And we may have this appetite, we, we need food. <laughs> um, and we have an appetite, we have a, a, a yearning for food. And sooner or later, our minds click in and work out how we're going to get some food. Um, uh, you see, our, our, our minds follow our hearts, and then our actions follow from that. Usually the things that we think about with our minds are matters of our own choosing. And what governs our choices? What do we feed our minds with? And so often we feed our minds with things that are unworthy. Uh, so often we do, because that's the way we are naturally. And we feast our eyes on things that are unworthy because, because our appetites indicate to our minds and our minds direct our eyes or our hands, whatever it is, to things that are unworthy. But Paul wants us here to set our minds on things that are above, not on earthly things. And in verse 3, he explains the logic of this. He says, well, because you died, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. They had died to the things of this world, to the things that are of the flesh. Paul says that he had been crucified with Christ, and so have we. And like Paul, our desires and our longings should be directed Godward to Christ. He is our life and less to this world. And as I say, there is a corporate relevance to this as a community as well as individuals. And how, how would it affect our community here in this church if we were more focused as a community as well as individuals in heart and in mind on the Lord Jesus Christ? How would, how would it affect our fellowship together? How more effective might we be uh, in, as salt and light in this world? And Paul in verse 4 promises that when Christ who is our life, appears, we also will appear with him in glory. It has what we might call an eschatological dimension. It looks to the end times. You see, we look back to what Christ has done for us and, and we look forward to what we will be when he comes again. And here we are in the middle, living our lives in the knowledge of what Jesus has done and the knowledge of of what we will be. And Paul says, we know what we're going to be, so let's live our lives now in a way that pleases God, that measures up at least in some way to what we know we will become. So let us be those who seek our minds and our hearts on things that are above. My second point is that there are things that we must put off. Verses five to eleven. Uh, and there's quite a number of things here. Uh, in verses five to seven, Paul uses some pretty strong language about putting to death certain things. A very strong expression. Why would he use such an expression? Well, he's speaking here in, in verse five about, about impurity and, and sexual sins. Look, he says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And he enumerates certain things. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Uh, sexual sin is always prevalent in every society. It was certainly prevalent in the Gentile 
society into which Paul was speaking. And in our own society, sexual sin of every description is prevalent and condoned even by Christians. And in the Christian community, these things must not even be entertained, not even for a moment. We are to put to death these things. But Paul moves on from here, unless we might uh, be complacent, because we do not make a habit, we might feel, of indulging uh, in sexual sin. Paul widens the scope of his argument. Having said that there were certain things they were to put to death, in verse 8, he talks about other things that they must rid themselves of. And this expression, rid themselves of, uh, or um, in the ESV it says, put them all away. What Paul has in mind is the removal of, of soiled and dirty garments. He's about to instruct them in the things that they're to clothe themselves with, um, and it's therefore only natural that before they clothe themselves with these new and wholesome garments that they should put off uh, the dirty garments uh, that they're wearing. And so what are these things that they're to rid themselves of or to put off? And they're actually enumerated for us. Look at verses 8 and 9. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. And of course he's speaking the language of community, isn't he? You see, we are those who have put off the old self and have put on the new self, as he says, which is being renewed in knowledge after its creator. And as members of God's new community, we are to live as those who bear the image of God as creator. God is a holy God. Uh, God is also a God, incidentally, who lives in community. Have you thought about that? That God actually lives in community? He always has lived in community. God has never been alone, in the sense that in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God has always lived in community. A perfect relationship. And you know, and when we live in community as God's people, what God wants us to do, at least in some measure, is to reflect something of what God knows himself of living in community, a perfect relationship, perfect trust, perfect confidence, peace, joy, perfect harmony. Wow! You know, what, it, what, what might it be like if we really try to fashion our community life in, 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 in the light of what it is for God to live in community. And so we live together in community. We do not live in total harmony, this side of heaven, but we should desire and we should be motivated to reflect the life of the Creator in whose image we are made. And in the first place, what this will mean is that we will discard those attitudes and practices that displease him, such as the ones listed here. And I'd, I'd like you all to go away and, and look at those two verses, verses 8 and 9, 
and look at them individually and, and, and look at these things that Paul enumerates. I mean, you know the things that you are prone to. I know the things that I'm prone to. You know, things like anger, rage, malice, slander. Are these things characteristic of your life? Well, I think they're characteristic of all of our lives in some measure. And I think we need to come honestly before God's word and repent of these things. Both in terms of how they affect us individually and how they affect us in community. And our third and final point is that having said that they were to set their hearts and minds on things above, having said that there were things that they were to put off, verses 12 to 17, there were also things they were to put on, things that they were to put on. And in contrast to the things they were to rid themselves of, of or put away, there were things that these Christians were to put on. And notice how in verses 12 to 17, Paul first of all describes these Christians. Look at verse 12. He refers to them as God's chosen people. God's chosen people. We are the chosen people of God. We did not choose him. He chose us. We are God's chosen people. And we are holy and dearly loved. Do you consider yourself to be holy? Well, there's a sense in which God sees us as holy because he sees us as clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's how God sees us. And to God, you and I are dearly loved. You are dearly loved by God, by our Heavenly Father. As a Christian, you have been saved and you are dearly loved. What an amazing thing. How does that make you feel? How does that make me feel? It fills me with joy that I am dearly loved by my Heavenly Father. He describes these people, these Christians, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. And he stresses, first of all, their status as the people of God and says that they are to clothe themselves with those virtues that mark them out as the people of God. In other words, Christian, live up to what you are. Um, we tell our children sometimes, uh, well, when I had children, I used to tell them to grow up. And my parents used to tell me to grow up. And in a sense in which we are to grow up, as Christians, we are to grow up. We are to become what we are. Holy, dearly beloved of God. And uh, he enumerates these things in the same way he enumerated the things they are to put off. He now enumerates the things that they are to put on. Look in verses 12 to 14. He says, clothe yourselves, they are things that they're to put on, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. 
I've, I've just finished reading a book by Gerald Sitzer. It's an IVP publication. It's called Love One Another, Becoming the Church Jesus Longs For. I've been quite impressed with this book, very impressed. I'm going to recommend it to the whole of our congregation in Whitcomb. And if you want the details from me, anybody, just let me know and I'll let you have them. I commend it to you. Very practical book, not a very heavy read at all. A very, I think they say accessible, very accessible read. And it goes through some of these virtues and shows how we, as the people of God, should conduct ourselves within the community of God's people. So that we love one another, so that we become the church which Jesus longs for. What would our fellowship be like if we were to demonstrate these qualities? Compassion. We're so inclined to be judgmental towards one another. Our first instinct is to make judgments uh, uh, rather than to show compassion. Kindness. It's more than thinking kind thoughts. It's acting in kind ways towards one another. Humility. Humility is, is where we think more highly of others than we think of ourselves. It doesn't come naturally. We usually tend to think of the other person as being wrong. That's our default position. Or we act with pride, thinking ourselves to be superior in some way. We're called to be humble in our relationships with one another. Gentle or meek is another translation, which is not the same as being weak. Uh, being tender towards one another in a way that Jesus was tender whilst he was exerting strength. Patient, bearing with one another. These two things go together. Are we naturally patient people? Not usually, and it shows. Forgiving one another, not just forgiving, but forgiving as we have been forgiven by God. Jesus has a lot to say about this. Showing love to one another. And Paul says here that love binds them all together. It's like uh, the clothing he wants us to put on and then over everything is love which binds all these virtues together. It's uh, not our natural inclination, but it is characteristic of the life of Christ within us. And the logic is this, quite simply. He started off by saying, since then you have been raised with Christ. Since we have been raised with Christ, since we have the life of Christ within us, the qualities that our lives should demonstrate should be the characteristics of the life of Christ within us. These are the new garments we're to put on and to wear. I can see I've run out of time. Um, I would simply say in closing that the rest of uh, the, this uh, section, verses 15 to 17, talks about the peace of Christ ruling in our lives, not just individually but corporately, and the words of Christ dwelling in us richly, not just individually, but corporately. May the peace of Christ rule our lives as a fellowship. May the word of Christ rule our lives as a fellowship. Father God, we thank you for your words. We praise you for the wisdom with which it speaks to us. We pray for your Holy Spirit to, 
to take that which has been of, of use this evening, that those words that have been spoken that have been of you, and that you would indelibly imprint those on our hearts and may our minds and our wills be directed towards obeying you and to serving you for Jesus' sake. Amen. We have a, a hymn to finish. Thank you, whoever chose the hymns. It's been very helpful. Um, but we have one to finish that I, I, I have to confess I find it hard to sing. Um, but it is relevant, very relevant to what we've been thinking about this evening. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship you. You alone are my strength, my shield. To you alone may my spirit yield. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship you. Let's stand to sing.